This is episode 25 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Today, we'll look at one final example of the third of the three key truths that are essential to believe in order to experience the higher Christian life. And I mean essential. Without your commitment to these truths, you will find the higher Christian life elusive at best and unobtainable at worst. Let's remind ourselves of these three truths before we begin. One, you must believe God is able, meaning he possesses the power and ability to keep you from falling or faltering in your life of holiness. You must settle this in your mind once and for all that God can do this. And this is especially true of him being able to keep you from stumbling, as it says in Jude 24. Number two, you must remove from your mind all doubt and fear that he is not willing to keep you from stumbling. Of course he's willing. That's what a good God does. And no God would command us to be holy as I am holy, for example, in 1 Peter 1.16, and then not give us the means to obey his command. And number three, the one we'll be looking at today, you must learn to commit yourself in abject absolute total dependence to the Lord for safekeeping. It is his job to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy and not yours. His job. And he is not only willing to bring you across the finish line, but as we've shared in the past, he is also able to carry you across that line if necessary. So join with us today as we look at the last of these three truths and discover the joy of the higher Christian life. Let's jump right in, shall we? Today, we'll close our study of the three key truths that must be believed in order to experience the higher Christian life by looking at one final example of how to commit yourself in total dependence to the Lord for safekeeping. This, of course, is truth number three. In essence, it means it is his job, as it says in Jude 24, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is his job and not yours. We shouldn't struggle. We shouldn't strive. We should rest in what he is able to do. In essence, we must learn by faith to trust him to complete what he has begun in our lives by his power and not struggle on our own. And quite honestly, for me, this is hard. And it's hard because it requires faith and trust and dependence and surrender. And those are all the things that war against our flesh and our pride and our self-sufficiency. Think about it. In this nation and in this culture, it's not about surrendering and dependence. It's about standing itself sufficiently in independence. And so therefore, there's always a struggle between the flesh and the Spirit. Jesus pretty much summed up this struggle when he said to Peter as he was walking on water and then began to get his eyes off the Lord and started looking at the circumstances, the waves that are around him, and began to sink. And he cried out to the Lord for the Lord to help him. And Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? You're walking on water in the middle of a storm, and your name means rock or stone. Why did you 
doubt, which is the exact question that I ask myself often when I'm faced with an opportunity to trust or to doubt. I don't know about you, but I always find it amusing as we as believers and members of his church can trust him without reservation regarding the things, as I call about in the sweet by and by, those things that happen after we die, heaven and, and eternal life and building a mansion for us and all that kind of stuff. And yet we struggle with the day-to-day realities of the here and now, that I can trust Christ for my eternal security, but I can't trust him to fulfill his promises today. How is that possible? How can I trust him for salvation without wavering or trust him in his promise to receive us unto himself so that, as he says in John 14, where I am, you may be also, and not have any questions about that at all. But then we waffle in our faith when it comes to his promise to keep me from stumbling and present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I can trust him on the huge stuff in the sweet by and by, but I struggle with the day in and day out stuff, and I don't know why. I mean, why do we do that? Why are we so strong in our faith in the things that we cannot see? Think about it, like heaven, the second coming of Christ, eternal life, stuff of that nature, yet we're tossed to and fro and carried about, like it says in Ephesians 4, of the things that we can see, like fear and insecurity or the lack of money or failing health or fractured relationships and all the other things that keep us up at night. Why is our faith strong in one area and not strong in another? Remember, we have a choice. We can forge through this life doing the things we hope please God in our own strength and end up, as you know, fatigued, weary, frustrated, tired, and about to give up in the end. Or we can soar through this life on the wings of eagles by allowing Christ to do through us the things that please God and end up exhilarated, overwhelmed with gratitude and bearing so much spiritual fruit that the branches that we have literally touch the ground. The abundant life, the higher Christian life, the choice is always ours and the end is always the same to try to do things that please the Lord, but there's two ways to do it. We can do it or we can let him do it through us. It's how we get to the end, again, pleasing the Lord that matters. I shared with you earlier that today I want to give you an example uh, of this principle that is found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. It's a very familiar story. We find here Jesus, after feeding the 5,000 men, probably close to 10 or 12,000 people total, when you factor in wives and kids and stuff of that nature, with his boy sack lunch, he then sends his disciples away so he can go up into the mountain and spend time alone with his father. It's like him saying, I'm in Gastonia, and I'll meet you in Charlotte. So why don't you guys get in your cars and drive to Charlotte, and I'll meet you there except in their vernacular, they were all supposed to get on a boat and cross over the sea, something they had done so many times. And so the disciples were given a command, and their command was, get in a boat and go before him 
to the other side. We see that in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. This is not a difficult command. This is not a hard command. This is not something they have never done before. In fact, it's something they had done most of their lives. And think about the disciples. I mean, traveling on water in a boat was not something new to most of them. Peter and Andrew, as well as James and John, were fishermen. We know that for certain because they were called by Christ while they were fishing. And so when you look at the disciples, were probably Thomas, Philip, and Nathaniel. They were also fishermen. So seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen. They grew up on the lake. They grew up with the smell of the sea in their nostril. They understood storms and tempest, and they'd seen bad times and good times. And the task of traveling by boat was second nature to a majority of them. They had all seen rough seas before, but on this night, they were struggling. I wonder why. It says in Matthew 14, 24, Says the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Two words here are kind of amazing tossed and contrary. When you think of tossed, you think of what, like tossing a salad or tossing a ball with somebody, this little underhand pitch. That's not what the word means at all. In the Greek, the word means to torture, to afflict with pain, to vex, to harass. This sea was being brutal to them, cruel to them, torturing them. And the reason why is the scripture says that the wind was contrary. And again, that word means it's over or set against. It means hostile or adverse. And not only that, but this struggle they were going through, they had been going through for a long time. Mark chapter 6, verse 48 says that when Jesus was coming to them, he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them, and it was about the fourth watch of the night. That's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. If they started before it got dark, then they had toiled all night long and had not reached their destination. And that verse also says that Jesus came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind what's happening here. We have the disciples are doing what they have always done in the flesh to follow the commands of Christ. He said, I want you to get in the boat and go to the other side. So they got in the boat and they were heading to the other side. Only things got tough and they got really tough, incredibly tough tough. And so what did they do when things got difficult? They do the same thing that we do. They tried harder. They worked harder. They strained at rowing harder all night long, hour after hour, fatigue setting in until the early morning hours. They were exhausted. They were worn out. And yet they still hadn't fulfilled his command. They still hadn't made it to the other side. And all the while that this was going on, this struggling and, and trying in the flesh to do exactly what Jesus told him to do, Jesus, of course, is casually, casually walking on the water, watching them as they struggle. Remember, this is the same water that was torturous and hostile to the disciples was also torturous and hostile to Christ, and yet he effortlessly just glided over it. A lesson here is both Jesus and the disciples faced the same circumstances, yet each one chose a different path 
to victory. The difference is this. Jesus, the key to victory, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord of creation, was outside of the boat. And the disciples who were in the boat were struggling to fulfill his command in their own effort. But once Jesus got into the boat with them, everything changed. The winds ceased. The seas became calm. And wonder and amazement fell upon each of the disciples. This is from Mark 6, 51. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the winds ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled and marveled. I bet they marveled. And we haven't even mentioned the fact about Peter asking the Lord to come to him, walking on water, getting part of the way there, doubting, sinking. Jesus pulls him up, saves him, and then says, why did you doubt? That that's another amazing topic for another time. But the lesson to be learned regarding the higher Christian life is this. We can try to live the higher Christian life in the flesh by our own efforts, and we will strain at rowing full of doubt and fear and failure and still never make it to the other side. Never. Or we can trust Jesus to empower us to fulfill his commands by his own efforts. We can invite him into our lives, invite him into the boat, refuse to doubt. And when we do, we watch the seas of our insecurity and fear become calm and our problems fade in the light of his glory. And then realize clearly that he is able to keep you from stumbling. Truth number three, you must believe and trust him and be secure in him and dependent on him to secure your safekeeping, to keep you from stumbling. Now, here's something I want to close with. I find this amazing. Did you notice what the next verse says? It simply states this, Matthew 14, 34, and when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. There's no mention of the troubling seas. It doesn't say how long it took them to cross over. It doesn't say how they crossed over. There's no word about how tired they were. Nothing. It's just a note to let us know that with Jesus in the boat with them, they were able to obey his commands. It's almost like he got in a boat, the seas became calm, and boom, with Christ in the boat, they're on the other side. I mean, we're talking about between... 3 and 6 a.m. anyway, that they were struggling. And I believe, and you would probably agree with me, that the ride to the other side of the lake after Jesus entered the boat was far easier and more wondrous than their toil before he got in the boat. Wouldn't you agree? So the question to us is this especially when it comes to believing these three key truths. I mean, what will it be? Striving or resting? Trusting or doubting? The higher Christian life or the life you have always known that you feel comfortable with, that you think that's all you're entitled to? The choice, as always, is yours. So let me encourage you to choose wisely. Choose recklessly. Choose 
with exuberance and excitement and trust and choose Christ. One final thought. I want you to pay attention to this. If you do the same thing, the same way that you've always done, then you shouldn't be surprised when you get the same results. The actual phrase goes that the definition of insanity is to do the same thing the same way you've always done and expect different results. If you live your Christian life in the flesh, if you try to serve the Lord in the flesh, if you try to hold on to the higher Christian life, this life of holiness by your own wits and will in the flesh, you'll get the exact same results that you have now. So in this life of a higher Christian life, let me encourage you to try something different. How about trying him for a change, trusting him, not yourself, and see if he's not faithful to his word, where he says in Ephesians 3.20, that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Remember, it is his job to keep you sanctified. It is your job to rest in him. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and I look forward to speaking with you again next time. Until then.